taking our copy of God's Word once again and turn to Genesis 38. We're going to read the whole of the chapter today, uh, all 30 verses. This is the story of uh, Judah and Tamar. Before we, uh, before we read the text, let's pray once again. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you that in the midst of uh, darkness, there is gospel hope. And we thank you for the way that this story teaches us that even when we have sinned grievously against others and when we have grievously been sinned against, that you are able to work in our lives for the glory of your name and the good of your people. We thank you that Jesus is in this story. Would you enable us to see him clearly and cause us to love him more from what you teach us here today. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Judah 38, or uh, excuse me, Genesis 38, let's, let's hear God's word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shalah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shalah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, his sheep shears. He and his friend Harah, the a Dolomite, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shalah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, For she had covered her face, he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me, 
that you may come into me. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shalah, and did not know her. He did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. My guess is that's not what you were expecting to hear when I said a moment ago, let's hear God's word. <laughs> a story about dysfunction, uh, sexual abuse, uh, lies and deception, prostitution and incest. It sounds like the stuff of tabloids, not the unfolding story of God's people. And yet here it is in our Bibles. It's a Bible story about spiritual failure and moral freefall, sin and consequences, complete with all of the bitter repercussions for everyone involved. And as you read the, the narrative, it, it raises the question in your mind, is, is there any hope in the aftermath of sin? And closer to home, you know, we have, we have faced this very same question. Similar, similar stories play out in the lives of friends and family and for some of us in our very own lives. And the question on our minds is, is there any hope in the aftermath of sin? Genesis 38 is in our Bibles to tell us, yes, yes, there is. For people who have committed great sin and for people who have been the victims of great, the sin, the great sins of others, there is hope. This story, it will, as it unfolds and continues to unfold in the rest of, of Scripture, 
will move on from the ravages of sin to to point us to, to hope and transformation and even divine breakthrough. It's a story about God triumphing over evil and even God working in and through evil to accomplish his good purposes in, in the world. So as we think about this story today, here's a, here's a sort of general outline as we look at the story. I want, us to, I want us to think about Judah's inherited baggage. Then I want us to think about Tamar's trap, uh, trap and trick. And then I want us to think about the divine breakthroughs in Judah's and Tamar's lives. So let's think first of all about Judah's inherited baggage. You know, when we read these chapters at the end of Genesis, we tend to think this is primarily you know, the story of Joseph, but actually it's the story of Jacob's family. And we've met this family, dysfunctional, a family torn apart by favoritism, arrogance, uh, hatred, jealousy, murder plots, and, and uh, lies. And following the, the sale of Joseph into slavery, Genesis 38 is one more step in the dissolution of, of this family. In the last chapter, Joseph left involuntarily, and now we meet Judah who leaves voluntarily. And the question that we ought to ask is why? And I think, I think one of the things we, we need to say is that Judah's own family experience had been anything but a shower of blessings. Now, Judah was the fourth son of Leah, the unwanted and unloved wife. Leah and Judah were second rate in, in uh, Jacob's eyes. And Jacob made that pecking order painfully obvious in the way he treated them. You remember the the story of, uh, of uh, Jacob coming to see Esau, reconciling with his estranged brother. And uh, Jacob was fearful that Esau might break out in, in, uh, in rage and in order to get revenge, harm his family. So what did Jacob do? He, he placed Leah and Leah's sons out in the front and hid his precious Rachel in the back. Can you imagine the question on the back of the camel, Mom, why, why are they so far behind? A favoritism was also felt in home life with Jacob, uh, Jacob showing Joseph favoritism with a coat of many colors. And even after Joseph was presumed to be dead, the favoritism was still painfully obvious as Jacob remained inconsolably grieved. It was as though none of his other children mattered to him at all. So why did, why did Judah leave? But that's, I think, one element of it. I think we could also say Judah's own guilt was part of why he left. Because not only was he fleeing from uh, a bad family life, you remember that he was instrumental in the selling of his very own brother into a life of slavery. And every single day, Judah had to face his inconsolably grieved 
father, knowing that he was the one responsible for it. No, so what does is, what is uh, Judah do? Well, I think he does what so many people do. He ran from all of this. Verse 1, he went down, and that's biblical language to indicate that something is not good here. He went down from his brothers, and he turned aside to a certain Dolomite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He he left home and he began assimilating with Canaanite culture. He found a close friend, took a wife for himself, um, because after all, who, who wants to live with a father who doesn't even care about you and who wants to daily be racked with guilt? And so knowing that, uh, he, he left home, I think, looking for a fresh, clean start. But in turning his back on his family and turning aside to the Adolamite and, and taking a Canaanite wife, I think we need to realize what Judah was really doing. He, he was turning his back on God and God's promises. Because this is, if I can put it this way, this is where the action is among Jacob's family. These are the descendants of Abraham and the family that God has chosen out of the families of the earth to to bless and to be with and to give to them a land and, and through them to bring blessing to the, the nations of the earth. And Judah is consciously turning his back on God and his promises. So Judah is walking away from God. And as he's walking away from God, see what he does. He walked away from the people of God. He turned to the world. I think there's a lesson there because often that's how it goes, isn't it? When a person turns away from God, they turn away from God's people. It's one of the sure signs that something is not right in their lives, that something is not good. They distance themselves from the people of God. But friends, it's also true that when we turn from God and his people and line ourselves up with the world and the ways of the world, we find ourselves falling into a moral and spiritual freefall. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Judah's own story here. So he's trying to get away from his problems. But the problem is that wherever Judah went, he took himself there. He, he couldn't get rid of himself. He couldn't, he couldn't detach himself from all of the ways he had been profoundly twisted and misshaped by his own family experience and the sin dwelling within his own heart. And that's why we, we sadly see what unfolds in Judah's life. He perpetuated the same sinful behaviors that we've seen already in his father. Just a couple parallels here for you to think about. Jacob had been driven by passionate desires. He was a man driven by passion. And Judah, we see here, lacked restraint. The text just says that he saw this Canaanite woman and took her. Every every other time that language is used in, in Genesis, it suggests lustful desire and sin. And so just like his father Jacob, Judah was driven by lustful passions and he was a failure of a husband. As a as a parent, uh, Judah was, was disengaged and, and distant. It's interesting. 
how it talks about the naming of the children here. Judah named his firstborn son Ur, which incidentally is evil, spelled backwards in Hebrew, I'm told. But then we're, we're told Judah had nothing to do with the naming of his second and third sons, Onan and Shelah. That's another parallel with, with Jacob. They, they were uninvolved in the naming of their children, whereas in previous generations, uh, Abraham and Isaac, the fathers, were deeply involved in the naming of their children. This is just little clues. But now the story fast forwards, say, 15 or 20 years, and Judah's parental failures are magnified. Two, two of his, his grown sons, Ur and Onan, were, are deemed so wicked in the sight of God that God puts them to death. Nothing like that has happened since Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually, this is the first time in the Bible it speaks of God uh, striking down particular individuals. And so we look at Judah's story unfolding, and I, I think we have to say Judah's plans of a restart and a fresh start have utterly failed. He's lost two of his three sons, and his entire family line is, is now in jeopardy because, well, according to the conventions of the age, it was his duty to give his last remaining son to his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar. But, uh, you know, Tamar's, Tamar's marriage partners are uh, 0 for 2 in the game of staying alive. And Judah blames that on Tamar. He believes that she is somehow cursed and that when someone joins himself to Tamar, they end up dead. And so Judah blames his daughter-in-law for this issue and his problems. And uh, instead of doing what he ought to have done, guess what he does? He opts for deception. Like father, like son. He, he promises Tamar that when... Uh, Shalah is old enough, she will have a husband, but in the meantime, he tells her, you go back and live with your father, and when the time comes, uh, I'll join you together. When in reality, Judah had no intention whatsoever in keeping his word. So the junk is just piling up in this story. Judah had a lot of junk dumped on him, and now Judah is the one dishing it out on others, and Poor, poor Tamar is now the one he blames for his problems. My friends, it's, it's astounding how easily we can do this sort of thing and deceive ourselves. Just follow the logic here of, of Judah's story. Judah sold his own brother into slavery. Judah turned his back on God and his promises and the people of God. Judah aligned himself with a Canaanite culture that had already been pronounced as coming under the judgment of God for its social evils and personal wickedness. Uh, Judah entered into a, a shotgun wedding, bad marriage. He, he ran with the wrong crowds. He was disinterested and disengaged with his own children. But the predicament that he's now in, that's Tamar's fault. You know, those two fresh mounds of dirt in the ground, that has nothing to do with this slew of sinful mistakes that Judah has made along the way. It's Tamar's fault. You know, the level of such self-deception, I think, is, is it's astonishing and it's frightening. 
It's astonishing because as outside observers reading this story, we can see so clearly how Judah is caught up in a life of sin. But it's also frightening because we can do the exact same thing. Actually, the, the city that Judah was living in at one point, it's called Chezub, which translates or can be translated as city of lies. Uh, Judah was living in a city of lies where he deceived himself into thinking he wasn't the problem. His heart wasn't the problem. But you see, this is what we often do. We, we create our own versions of reality which support our own innocence and self-exoneration. I think Judah illustrates how many people deal with their problems. Judah suffered as, as a young boy. And it is, it's good to be able to understand that some of the evil that happens to us is outside of our control. That we are being impacted by the sins of others and it isn't our fault. Our ability to make that distinction, dear friends, uh, is, is, is fundamental and important between the things that are, are our fault and the things that are done to us and are not our fault. Now, often, uh, young children haven't yet learned this distinction. So whenever something bad happens in their family life or something happens between their parents, they, they, they assume that somehow it is their fault. Child abusers are aware of this dynamic, and it's exactly what they take advantage of, isn't it? Telling the child that they are abusing, that the abuse they're receiving is their fault. And then these children grow up into adults and begin to think that the wrongs being committed against them are somehow their fault. They have to learn to make that distinction between wrongs they do and wrongs done to them. But here's Judah all grown up, and his problem is not that he blames himself for everything that's happening. It's just the opposite. Judah has developed a pattern of blaming everyone else for what's going on in his life. Everything else, or everything is someone else's fault. And you know, many of us deal with our problems this way. Here's a test for you. Just listen to yourself throughout the week and ask the question, when was the last time I said, that was my fault? <laughs> I was a fool. I blew it. No, no qualifiers. I am ready to receive the consequences of what I did wrong because I am the one who sinned. Instead, very often we say things like, I'm sorry, but... Or I did this, or I said this because so-and-so said this or did this. We qualify it, acknowledging just enough to show a little bit of false humility, while at the same time trying to justify ourselves. And here's Judah, caught in a life of sin, but he's blaming someone else for his problems. And notice, notice too at this point in the story, Judah is completely blind to his true spiritual condition and to his hypocrisy. He is self-deceived and we can easily be in that position, self-deceived and blind to what's really going on. 
And so one of the things that Judah desperately needed was to have the blinders taken off. He needed to have his eyes open to see himself for what he truly was. He needed to see his sin and his unrighteousness before God. And God is going to do that in this story, though perhaps in one of in a way that we would have never uh, expected. That's Judah and his baggage. But let's, let's think about Tamar. I want to think, first of all, about Tamar's trap. And we need to, first of all, appreciate the, the terrible situation that Tamar was trapped in. The awful circumstances that she was pulled into. You know, people in the ancient world married young, so it's very likely that Tamar was a teenager while these events took place in, in the story. Her first husband died, struck down by God for his wickedness, so I think it's safe to assume that he probably wasn't a great guy to be with. And then, uh, Tamar's second husband, Onan, abuses what, what was supposed to be a duty of kindness and provision for Tamar. The practice known as Leverite marriage, or Leverite marriage, where a brother-in-law would marry the widow of a deceased brother who, who died childless. And, and the purpose was twofold. The purpose was to, to continue the family line of the deceased brother. And secondly, to provide a, a safety net for the widow in a culture where there were no social structures to provide for, for widows. And so Onan should have fulfilled this responsibility, but instead he turned this duty of kindness into an opportunity to sexually exploit this young girl. Onan had, he had no desire to father a child for his deceased brother Ur, because that would require the relinquishing of the place of the firstborn. Along with that, the financial privileges and the double inheritance that went along with that. So, so Onan didn't want to uh, give up his de facto position of firstborn son by giving Ur a son through Tamar. And that means there really was no reason for him to marry and to sleep with Tamar at all, but instead he used this social convention to, to abuse Tamar for his own sexual pleasure. The, the horrifying word in verse 9, whenever, highlights the fact that Onan's abuse was, was repeated and regular. I think this is a little bit of speculation, but we can, we can easily see how it, he, he could get away with something like this. You know, publicly, he could say, trying to fulfill my, my duty here, trying to do the right thing. Meanwhile, the text tells us what was going on behind the closed door of, of the tent. And what was happening to Tamar was so humiliating and shameful and wrong, she wouldn't take this into the public. Onan was using Tamar for his own pleasure, and God struck him dead. For his own wickedness. My friends, we are fools if we do not think that God knows what we pretend to be doing in secret. You will see that justice is done. Tamar, then in this story, has, has been married to two wicked men, both of them struck dead. Publicly, there's this growing perception 
at least in the view of Judah, that there's something wrong with this girl Tamar. At least that's what he believed. And if Judah didn't keep his word to give his third son to be her husband, she would, she would remain stuck in this position, unable to remarry and eventually end up at the lowest level of society with nothing and no one to care for her. That's the situation she's found in. So we need to understand the, the awful circumstances she, she was caught up in. Some, some commentators point out that uh, her name Tamar, which was a Canaanite name, means uh, palm tree, which was a symbol of beauty in, during, during that time. And so they're saying is here's this here's this young attractive girl perhaps once full of hope about the future and now in the eyes of some she's damaged goods she's cursed whatever she touches ends up dead and perhaps she started to believe some of those things about herself she was a victim of sin and it resulted in a life of suffering and shame and you know many more than we realize, dear friends, suffer from the same sort of shame as Tamar. I think current statistics, I think your first reaction to this is going to be, that can't be right. But actually, statistics show that it might be even more serious than this. Current statistics say one in four women and one in six men will experience sexual abuse in their lives, will be the victims of sexual abuse. And as we see in Tamar's case, these situations are often caused not by complete strangers, but family members and, and friends. Many people today experience terrible circumstances like that and have been betrayed by those who were supposed to protect them. And so Tamar, uh, Tamar was deeply, profoundly sinned against and then she was sent packing. Just get her away, as far away as we can. Because at least from Judah's point of view, this was all her fault. So what about, what about Tamar's trick? Well, she was apparently a tenacious and, and brave young woman. She's stuck without a husband waiting upon a father-in-law who has no intention of keeping his word to provide a husband. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She sets a trap for Judah. You're going to trick me? I'll trick you. It's the way this family works. So take a look at her trickery. Judah headed out uh, on a, well, I guess kind of a sort of business trip. Uh, at sheep shearing time with his friend Hira. Tamar gets word of his plans and his whereabouts, so she takes off her widow's garments and dresses the part of a prostitute. And isn't it, isn't it telling that all Tamar needs to do is make herself available? And she knows that. It speaks to Judah's character, doesn't it? Tamar knew, all I need to do is make myself available to him and he will pounce. He will not pass up the opportunity for a one-night stand. So he saw her and propositioned her. She played the part of a prostitute negotiating terms. Judah didn't have a means of payment. 
uh, to pay up front. So she, she demanded his signet, cord, and staff, the, the equivalent of uh, official identification documents, like a driver's license today. She got just what she needed to, to, to identify him and bring him out into the open. And it's telling, here's another interesting a fact here, all of this takes place on the outskirts of the village of Anaim, which literally means the opening of the eyes. You know, Judah, Judah remains completely blind to the fact that this is his daughter-in-law, and he remains completely, remains completely blind to his true spiritual condition and his own hypocrisy that is going to be exposed here in a moment. But the outcome of this is going to be Open his eyes to his true spiritual condition. But you see, coming back to Tamar, um, in so many ways, Tamar was the innocent victim of the sins of Judah and his sons. Given the cultural convention of the day, she probably didn't even have a say in her marriage with Ur, the firstborn son. She got pulled into this terrible family and these awful, awful circumstances. Yeah, the text just says, Judah took her for his son. Uh, you know, some people, I think, I think we, we also need to recognize that the trap, the trap she lays for Judah was about, was about getting justice and righting a wrong. Now, some people will take take the view here that Tamar had actually become a believer in, in uh, the promise that through, through Jacob's descendants, the Messiah would come. And now here's Judah refusing to perpetuate the line of promise, and so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Some people take that view of this story. Other people see this primarily as being Judah is saying, anyone this girl sleeps with dies. And so now she's going to prove that wrong by herself sleeping with her father-in-law. Whatever, whatever the reason, she was seeking to right a wrong, but she does it in a profoundly wrong way. Her, her trap was moral, morally wrong in so many ways. She perpetuates the cycle of sin. She engages in prostitution to entrap her father-in-law. She joins herself in sexual union with her father-in-law, raising the whole issue of, of incest. And so Tamar was setting out to right a wrong, but she was doing it in a profoundly wrong way. My friends, just like Tamar, when, when we are wronged, we can respond in profoundly wrong ways, can't we? We might not be as brave as Tamar in the way that she acted out, but in our minds and in our hearts, we wage war against those who have hurt us, nursing bitterness, harboring resentment, delighting in the, the suffering of those who have wronged us. We were sinned against, and we're going to continue that cycle of sin and get our own hands dirty. That's where we're at in this story. So come back with me for a minute to the original question I asked. Is there any hope in this story? Is there any hope for the cycle of sin to be brought to an end, to be broken? And this story 
is, is here to say, yes, yes, there is hope. Because the story doesn't end with all this sin having the last word. But you see, the hope doesn't come from anyone caught up in this cycle of sin. Someone has to break in and arrest the cycle of sinful action and reaction. And this story ends with the birth of twins. One of them called Perez, which means breach or, or breakthrough. And the personal stories of Judah and Tamar end with twin breakthroughs. Think about those for a minute. Uh, the occasion for Judah's breakthrough starts with a rumor. Tamar is pregnant by immorality or cult prostitution. I mean, the background to all of this is they're in a Canaanite society and a part of Canaanite religion involved cult prostitution in order to gain the, the, the favor of the gods, particularly for fertility in the fields and in family life. And so you'd sleep with a cult prostitute. And it's likely that uh, Tamar was pretending to be a cult prostitute. That's the, that's the background here. Uh, and and uh, Judah gets the news. Tamar is pregnant by prostitution. And, well... It's out of his heart that Judah's mouth speaks. <laughs> Bring her out and burn her. Those are the first, that's the first thing he says. He doesn't say, my daughter, I better go check up on her. I'll, I'll go speak to her and find out what is going on here. Bring her out and burn her. He jumps at the opportunity to finally get rid of her. He could, he could finally get a different wife for his son. Because you understand, as long as Tamar was alive, he was duty-bound to provide for her. But this was his chance to get rid of her and move on. And with her dead, the family line could continue. And, and the best part of it all is that Tamar would come off looking like the despicable slut, while he would come off looking like the fine, upstanding, moral individual that he saw himself to be. Now, Judah you see, remains blind to his sin and his utter hypocrisy. But, but look, look at what God does here. He uses these very circumstances to rip the blinders off. God breaks through and causes J uh, Judah to see his wickedness. He, he shows, if I can call it this, painful grace to Judah. Judah. Yeah, think about that. This, this Judah, this man who is so easy to hate. This man who has broken covenant with God. This man who has turned his back on the promises of God and has associated and aligned himself with the practices of Canaanite culture. This Judah. My friends, if this story tells us anything, it tells us that no one is outside the reach of God's grace. But, but it's... It's a grace that must humble us to the dust before it lifts us up. Now, God's grace came to Judah in the message from Tamar, verse 25. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Please identify them. Imagine it. Here he is staring at his own personal possessions. And the blinders finally come off. 
he realizes it's him. He, he realizes that after, after blaming others for his problems for years and years, he finally recognized it's his own guilt. And he says, Tamar is more righteous than I. I am unrighteous. I have lied. I have left her without recourse. And I was about to burn her for the exact same sin that I am guilty of. So what does Judah's breakthrough show us or teach us? It, it teaches us we need God's grace to open up our eyes to our sin. We need God to rip off the blinders, dear friends, because a necessary step in true repentance is an honest acknowledgement of the wretchedness of our own sin. You know, we give up, we give up trying to defend ourselves. We give up trying to shift the blame. We give up trying to minimize our sin. And we begin to name our sin with its biblical name and own it without excuse. Until we, until we have that kind of breakthrough, you see Ju Judah illustrates how so many people deal with their sin. I'll manage it by telling outright lies, twist the truth to my own advantages, try to maintain my own innocence, shift the blame when necessary to exonerate myself. But you see, the story of Judah, it's the story of Enaim, the opening of our eyes. It is the story of a God who, for gracious reasons, intends to expose us to who and what we really are. Sinners. And friends, that can be a really painful thing, an unpleasant thing. It's, it's like walking out of a, of a movie theater a dark movie theater on a bright, sunshiny day. And the first beams of light hit us. And it's painful and it's uncomfortable. And it can be hugely embarrassing. Just think about how Judah must have felt. A few weeks ago, he was sending his friend in secret to, to try to recover his personal goods. So that he could maintain his own reputation. Now, he is halting the burning of his daughter-in-law who is pregnant with his own children. This was God's way of humbling a proud and blind Judah. And friends, sometimes God needs to humble us to confront us about the shameful, foolish, hurtful things we have done. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing is that Judah's redeemed and as we'll see later, transformed life Shows us that we do not have to be crushed by the guilt of our sin. Left without any hope. We, yet we need our eyes open to see how unrighteous we really are before a holy God. How much hurt we have caused with our sin. But you see, God doesn't open our eyes simply to leave us there without hope. This text is showing us that God opens our eyes to lead us to true, full, deep, lifelong repentance. The, the improbable repentance of Judah is incredibly good news for, for sinners like you and me. But what about, what about Tamar's breakthrough quickly here? I think it's equally amazing. Having compromised her own innocence in all of this mess, she was heading for the flames as 
a condemned prostitute until she hears the next moment uh, her clearing as Judah said, no, stop, I am more unrighteous than she is. That's still, I, I don't know about you, but that's, that's not quite satisfying. She escaped the flames. But what about everything else? What about the years of shame? What about the sexual abuse? What about being considered a curse and cast out by her her family, and seen as the problem in all of Judah's circumstances. Was, was, God, was God able to bring anything good out of that terrible, awful, disastrous mess? Yeah, the story ends here. Tamar gave birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. And later in scripture, Tamar appears at two points. At the wedding of Ruth and Boaz, the, the elders prayed, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Once thought a curse, Tamar's memory was now invoked among the people of God as a model of God's blessing. Let's go a little further, though, because through Boaz, Tamar was an ancestor of King David. And nine or ten centuries later, Matthew is writing his gospel, and he's writing the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And guess who you find right in the middle of God's saving purposes for the world? This unwanted, abused, cast out young woman, Tamar. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Isn't God's work amazing that he, this would be his ordained means of sending Jesus into the world? That God would bring the Savior of the world into this world through the very sinful actions of the people that Jesus would come to save. It's a marvelous picture of, of God's intervening grace. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we are all damaged goods. And not one of us comes today with clean hands. And this is why Jesus came as the as the true, if we can call him this, the true breakthrough son. To seek and to save that which was lost. And so as we close, dear friends, is there, is there anything in this story that teaches us about our Savior? Is there anything in this story that would cause us to, to love him more and to be more devoted to him in our lives? We just realize this is... Jesus' family story. These are the kinds of people he, he associated himself with in coming into this world. And think of it, now having made atonement for sin and having been raised up and ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Jesus Christ has the blood of Judah and Tamar flowing through his veins. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul, this saying is worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Sinners who have themselves committed great sins and sinners who have experienced great sin at the hands of others. As you know, what, what's best of all is you think about this story, Jesus inverted 
what Judah did to Tamar. Judah wanted to take his sin and place it at the feet of Tamar and say, it's all your fault. Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to take all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your blame and I'm going to nail it to the cross and put it to death. And the same Jesus brings us into the family of God, dear friends, where we have, we have the assurance that we are loved, that we are provided for, and that we will be protected forever under the shelter of God's wings. What a savior we have, dear friends. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this text, this great sad story that is yet full of hope. And we thank you that you sent your son in the flesh and that this is Jesus' family tree, a dysfunctional family that down to the last one is desperately need in need of saving grace. That is us today, Lord. So may we know the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in him, walk in repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.